You've seen the headlines, bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. And in London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. David Brent, Basil Fawlty, even Malvolio, fictional British managers tend to be comic figures. Actual British managers are all too often not that good at their jobs. That makes the firms they run a lot less productive. And an ambitious survey is being carried out door to door, asking people across the UK all kinds of things about sex. Getting honest answers is one challenge. Another is turning the results into useful public health data. But respondents are surprisingly game. First up, though. The devastation brought by two massive earthquakes that hit southern Turkey and northern Syria a week ago is becoming ever clearer. Millions of people have been left homeless or afraid to go even into buildings that are still standing. Yet more danger is posed by freezing overnight temperatures. The stories of survivors being pulled from collapsed buildings are becoming fewer. In their place are stories of anger and frustration about the Turkish government's response to the crisis and about why so many of the country's buildings came down. The rescue effort continues, but increasingly it's beginning to resemble a mass exhumation effort. Piotr Zalewski is our Turkey correspondent, who's been traveling throughout the area devastated by the earthquakes. More than 30,000 people are dead. That number does not include an additional 3,500 dead in Syria. And perhaps even 100,000 people may still be trapped under the rubble, which is one reason why the UN expects the death toll to double at least. So you've been traveling around in the wake of the tragedy. What have you seen? I've seen cities almost entirely leveled. I've seen groups of people standing opposite the wreckage of their buildings everywhere. From Iskenderun to Antakya to Kahramanmaraş to Adyaman to Osmanya, everywhere the same scenes, everywhere the same devastation. Obviously there are towns where the devastation is not as severe as elsewhere, but in places like Antakya, in places like Adyaman, Almost every other house has collapsed. And we're talking about houses from two stories to 10 stories, sometimes up to 14 or 15 stories high. In Iskenderun, a city of about 200,000 people on the Mediterranean coast, I saw a fire raging, consuming the entire city port. And nobody appeared to be putting it out. It seemed like it had been left to burn. This is uh, Iskenderun port. Massive fire is just 
tearing its way through the entire port. And one man I spoke to there asked, uh, how come the state can't put out this fire right by the sea? You know, those questions are being asked all over the region, all over the country. In Antakya, a city of 400,000 people, a city that looked like it had been carpet bombed for months on. I saw bodies wrapped in blankets and rugs, aligning the streets alongside survivors, alongside the wounded who are waiting for medical help. I saw a man pleading with his brother to stay alive, to stay conscious, telling him that they still had much to do. He said he had come from Istanbul to see him, and he said, you know, brother, don't let go. In the southern city of Adana, there were multiple collapsed buildings, again, 12 stories, 14 stories high. And these were buildings that were entirely pancaked, just mounds of rubble, and people were digging through them. with cranes, with excavators, but also sometimes with their bare hands. Uh, 6,000 buildings are believed to have been destroyed, completely destroyed by the earthquake. The number of damaged buildings is much, much higher than that. And everywhere the silence is probably the most unbearable part. Every 15 minutes, every half an hour, rescue workers will stop digging, uh, the machines will come to a halt, all that in hopes of uh, hearing the screams of survivors. And more often than not, there's just silence. So broadly, obviously, rescue operations are, are going on, but it is of an unthinkable scope. Has the response been what you might have expected? People who sympathize with the government will tell you that the response was inadequate because of the scale of what we've seen on the ground has been so massive, that the magnitude of the earthquake was such and the timing was such that you know, no government could have been prepared to cope with the tragedy. People who sympathize with the opposition will tell you that the preparations were inadequate from the beginning, that there just wasn't enough manpower, there weren't enough resources at the disposal of the government and local authorities uh, to cope with this. And, well, the truth is that however you spin it, and uh, the opposition and the government has been spinning it over the past two days, the response uh, was inadequate. And in many places, it was badly so. In places like Antakya, Adyaman, elsewhere, help or rescue teams did not arrive for days. In some places, it did not arrive at all. In Antakya, I saw bodies wrapped in blankets been left there after being dug up by friends or relatives or volunteer rescue workers waiting to be picked up by ambulances. I saw the wounded waiting to be picked up. I saw the wounded who had died while waiting for ambulances to arrive. The government says that rescue teams have reached all of the affected areas, but many locals in many places uh, disagree. Now, if the state is falling short, then civil society is not. And across the region, help is pouring in from all over Turkey. Help is also pouring in from abroad. Um, there's food, there are blankets, there are tents, 
there are volunteers flying in from Istanbul, from other uh, parts of the country to help with the relief effort, to help with the humanitarian effort. Across the region, millions of people made homeless are sleeping in tent cities provided by the country's emergency relief agency in mosques, schools, libraries, or in their own cars. And what about in, in Syria, the situation across the border? What do we know there? I mean, the death toll in Syria is lower than it is in Turkey, but other than that, the situation seems to be much more dire in that Syrians in the north of the country do not have really a state uh, whose resources they can draw on. Part of the region, part of the north, is controlled by rebel groups and Islamist jihadist groups. Uh, part of the region is controlled by Turkish troops and their proxies. And Turkey has enough trouble getting help to places inside its own borders. And so I imagine the relief effort in those areas is woefully inadequate as well. And part of the affected region is uh, controlled by Kurdish insurgents. So getting humanitarian aid, getting rescue teams into northern Syria has been incredibly hard, if not impossible. And many Syrians are saying now that it's just too late. There are no survivors. Everyone is dead. And the world has simply left those people for dead in the rubble. Deaths there are roughly split between Idlib, a rebel-held province in the northwest, and areas controlled by Bashar al-Assad's regime. The UN and the United States have called for Syrian government and all groups to grant humanitarian access. So clearly the situation harder in Syria, long a war zone, but back in Turkey, clearly a, a place that has experienced earthquakes before, including an enormous one in 1999, yet you say all of these buildings came down, have been pancaked. Why is that? What is it that, that's made this so bad from a construction point of view? So, you know, the 1999 earthquake, which killed about 18,000 people near Istanbul, was something of a wake-up call. And in its wake, the government passed new building codes, new regulations. The Erdogan government then embarked on an urban renewal program under which something like 3 million or over 3 million housing units have been earthquake-proofed. But that's just not been enough. In fact, a few years ago, the country's housing agency revealed that over half of the housing stock fell short of building codes, of building standards. So obviously this is one reason for the mass destruction. The other is that you know even new construction is problematic in that you have wide-scale corruption, you have developers who will build on the cheap, and then on top of that you have a string of building amnesties. And these are amnesties under which property owners can register housing or elements of their homes that do not meet the building codes and then have them legalized in exchange for a rather hefty fine. In 2019, I believe, President Erdogan appeared in Kahramanmaraş, one of the cities that was hardest struck by this earthquake and said proudly that something like 144,000 uh, residents in the city benefited from this building amnesty, which is to say that 144,000 people managed to 
register property that did not meet building codes. So letting that kind of construction slide seems to be clearly at least part of the reason behind the devastation here. So the scale of the earthquake is obviously one explanation for the damage, but arguably the biggest cause may have been shoddy building standards, corruption, and bad policymaking, all of these being the ingredients or some of the hidden ingredients of Turkey's entire economic model, which is powered by construction and rent-seeking. Now, the government of Recep Tayyip Erdogan bears much of the blame, but so do its predecessors, and so do municipalities, including those run by the opposition, and so do countless developers and planners. So Turkey's facing an election on May 14th. That's assuming that the election will not be postponed due to the crisis. In the long run, or at least in the next you know, three months, many hard questions will be asked, especially to the government of Mr. Erdogan. They will question the urban development model over which Erdogan has presided, and they will question the building amnesties. So there will be some sort of a backlash. The only thing that remains to be seen is the scale of the backlash. Piotr, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. In popular culture, managers aren't always held in high esteem. Dilbert, a long-running American cartoon set in an office, paints them as a meddling bunch that occasionally cause more harm than good. And their depictions in British TV series tend towards one of two types. They either demonstrate toe-curling awkwardness, like David Brent, the insufferable and constantly inappropriate boss in the office. People see me and they see the suit and they go, you're not fooling anyone. They know I'm rock and roll through and through. Not orthodox, you know. I don't live by the rules. Or they show slapstick incompetence, like Basil Fawlty in Fawlty Towers. May we have two X-Men maces, Certainly, why not? Why not indeed? We are all friends now, eh? Old difference is forgotten, and no need at all to mention the war. Sorry, sorry. Oh, yes, completely slipped my mind. Yes, I've forgotten all about it, Hitler. But while humorous, those unflattering depictions of the British managerial class may have at least a tiny bit of truth behind them. So there's this stereotype about Brits being bad managers, our culture being one that values the gifted amateur over the dogged administrator. And we enjoy laughing at people who take themselves far too seriously. But there is a serious side to this. Joshua Roberts is the city and finance correspondent for The Economist. Britain has a growth problem and it has a productivity problem. 
It's the only country in the G7 whose economy is still smaller than it was before the COVID pandemic. And it's the only one that the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, thinks will go into recession this year. And on the evidence we've got, British firms genuinely are worse managed than those in several countries we like to think of as peers. And it's likely that that makes them less productive. How do we know British firms are worse managed than others? So management is quite a slippery topic for economists to study, and not many do. But I've spent some time over the last few weeks with two of them, John Van Rienen and Nicholas Bloom, who've been attempting to correct that. Since 2003, these two have been developing and running what they call the World Management Survey. Now, that's an attempt to study management practices more scientifically and to put the study of them on a more rigorous footing. So researchers ask organisations open questions about how they're run. This is things like, how do they monitor their production lines? What decides if people get promoted? How do they record improvements to their processes? You know, that sort of thing. And the researchers, after having these conversations with them, they then grade them in a range of different categories. That's been going since 2003. And the survey now includes over 20,000 interviews with medium-sized firms, with hospitals, with schools in 35 countries. Some of them are rich economies, some of them are emerging markets. And then after the conversation and after the grading, they do a bunch of adjustments to try and remove any biases. And what do the results show? Well, there are some really interesting trends that we see. One is that differences between firms in different countries are not just big, they also persist across borders and in regional offices. So, for example, the London branch of an American business will typically be managed to the same standard as that same business's offices in New York or Chicago. Another finding is that multinationals get higher management scores than domestic firms wherever they locate in the world. But it's the results between countries that are probably the most interesting ones. Now, Britain's managers don't do terribly when compared to the rest of the world. If you aggregate the results of the surveys since 2004, Britain comes number six. So that means that it outperforms the likes of France, Australia and Singapore. But the UK sits below the sort of elite group. Now, that's headed by America. And it also includes countries that Britain likes to think of as peers. So it includes Japan, Germany, Sweden, and Canada. Is it clear that being in this elite group actually matters for a company's overall performance? Well, well-managed firms, the thing is they also tend to score highly on a host of other really desirable metrics as well. So they're likely to be more productive, they're likely to be more profitable, to export more, and to grow their output more quickly. And the kicker is that employees of these firms tend to get a better work-life balance as well. So those outcomes seem kind of intuitive. Like it makes sense that firms that are better run should, you know, be more productive and more profitable. But if those are intuitive, quite how much good management matters is still startling. So the correlation between a high management score and productivity is so strong that management seems to account for more of the difference between the most and least productive firms than factors like research and development or use of IT. John Van Rienen and Nicholas Bloom, those are the two economists who run the World Management Survey, they reckon that more than half of the productivity gap between Britain and America can be attributed to poor management practices. Now, that's a big claim. All of these variables are intertwined with each other. And it could be, for example, that more productive firms are just able to attract better managers with higher pay or to pay consultants to help them become better managers. 
And however strong the effect of good management on things like productivity, it can easily be swamped by other influences. Even taking all of that into account, though, Britain should take its management deficit more seriously. Having better run companies and better run public sector organisations, it might not be sufficient to solve all the country's productivity problems, but it's hard to imagine that it wouldn't help. So what can Britain do to improve the quality of its managers? So one area Britain could look at to improve its overall management is family firms. These are common in Britain and they're common in many economies, including really productive ones like Germany, where firms tend to be well managed. But one of the best predictors that a firm will be very poorly managed is that it's family owned and has a chief executive who inherited their position, specifically who inherited that position by being the eldest male child. One of the World Management Survey's early studies found that two-thirds of British family firms chose their CEO in this way. That compares to one-third of American family firms and a tenth of German ones. One of the things that encourages British firms to do this could be the UK's tax code. So this gives up to 100% inheritance tax relief for businesses that are passed down the family. The US has no relief that's comparable to that, and Germany's is much smaller. It's around 50%. So getting rid of that tax relief or making it contingent on a more meritocratic selection process for the CEO, that could be one step in the right direction to improving management. Another boost could come from more competition. So one of the best predictors that a firm will be well managed is that it faces strong competition in its product markets. Now, the trade restrictions that firms face as a result of Brexit reduce that galvanizing effect that competition can have. And so reducing those trade restrictions and promoting competition could spur British firms to be better run and more productive. And Joshua, how likely do you think these changes are to come about? And more broadly, how likely do you think it is in the near term that British managers can improve? Well, something that's as culturally embedded as bad management is obviously going to be hard to shift. There won't be just a quick fix. But there's at least one good sign. A significant part of the apprenticeship levy, that's a tax that encourages businesses to spend more on training, has been used for mid-career management training. And private sector employees that complete those apprenticeships on average see a 17% pay rise. So that suggests that employers put quite a high value on this mid-career management training. Now, the best thing would be if Brits started taking the idea of management more seriously and, you know, treat it as more of a career to aspire to. In the real world, we probably won't stop laughing at managers, but we can at least try and acknowledge their importance as well. Britain isn't going to escape its growth drafts without them. All right, Joshua, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. Right now, people around Britain are answering a knock at the door and being asked some intimate questions. And while that might feel a bit awkward... The Economist's Britain correspondent, Catherine Nixie, says it's extremely important for the sake of public health. At this very moment, volunteers are fanning out across Britain. Have you ever paid money for sex with a man or a woman? They're armed with 10,000 randomly selected addresses. How did you meet the person who you first had sexual intercourse with? Carefully worded questionnaires and imperturbable expressions. And they're doing all of this to assess the nation's sexual habits. Have you ever taken any type of medicine or pills to assist your sexual performance? For example, Viagra. You can think of it, if you like, as a sort of national passional lottery. It could be you. And if it is, I'd brace yourself. 
Why is that? What can I expect if I'm a lucky uh, or unlucky winner? For one thing, the survey has up to 607 questions and takes, depending on how thrilling your life has been, about an hour to complete. It's not about judging people, this survey. It's about sex, plain and simple. And it happens every 10 years. And it's called the National Survey of Sexual Attitudes and Lifestyles, or NATSEL. But you can kind of forget that and lifestyles bit, which makes it sound as though it's about whether you're a practicing vegan. It's not. It's just about sex. And so the questions are suitably sexy? (laughs) No. The questions are very carefully worded. They did an entire survey on what words they should use to talk to people about sex. A survey before the survey. They did a pre-survey survey to make sure that they used words which were neither offensive nor baffling nor too oblique. So they avoid slangy or clinical or judgmental words. So they avoid things like making love or having it off or going all the way or going to bed with because they're all a bit oblique. Bonking and screwing were also out because they're too slangy. And interviewers are trained in keeping what one of the researchers described to me as that poker face. And they also avoid leading questions. It's interesting when you read them because when you, if you read poetry and novels such as Jane Austen, you know, passion is, is very carefully and delicately described. And it, it's a tempestuous thing if you read Sappho or Austen or John Donne. These questionnaires are, in a funny kind of way, very soothing to read. They read much more like a sort of GCSE maths logic problem. So one of them says, thinking about all the people you have had sex with in the last five years, did any of them overlap in time? In other words, did you have sex with someone, person A, and then have sex with someone else, person B, and then have sex with the first person, person A again? So it's not easily confused with Austin, this stuff. So why? Why do all this? Why go to the trouble? So It arose from what was actually essentially a maths problem. So it came about in the mid-1980s. A new disease had arisen and was spreading largely among gay men. It was HIV AIDS. Now, nobody knew. It's our number, which people will probably know from COVID now, is the average number of people infected by each infected person. And they couldn't really work out what it was because they didn't know They had no idea what people were doing and with whom and how often. So they realised that actually you need to know for the health of the whole society what sex people are having. The whole study arose from that need. And, I mean, it's possible to smirk at Natsal now, but when it began in the mid-1980s, it was absolutely deadly serious. You sort of forget the shame and stigma that was around both sex and particularly gay sex in that period. But... They realised that they had to ask people about it, and so they started to do so. And so even though we are past that very stigmatised and and very troubling era of HIV, the the survey continues, same as it was. So this time round, it will be focusing, as one of the researchers said to me, not just on bugs and babies, but on sexual pleasure. And they didn't do that in the past because they were very concerned, because it was a bit shocking to do this. Everyone wanted it to be super clinical so that nobody could query it. But they are now looking at sexual pleasure. And there will likely be some changes thrown up by the results. One of the things that was striking and perhaps to some people surprising was a rise in same-sex experiences between women, which has been marked and rapid, actually, from the last three surveys. So this is now the fourth one. It's NatSel4. And perhaps the main change that this survey will show is that Britons are increasingly comfortable talking about this kind of thing. The first one caused almost a scandal, whereas this time I think people will be completely nonplussed. 
but still they have to answer their door and respond to hundreds of questions over perhaps an hour or more. Everybody's going to be willing to do this? Not everybody, but they have a much better response rate than most questionnaires do. They have around 58%, I think, of people say yes. Men are perhaps surprisingly less keen on doing it than women, but they do get a very, very good response rate. The results of it will come out in probably 2025, so it's two years between finishing doing the survey and analysing the results. And it is, as one of the researchers put it to me, no quick and dirty sex survey. Catherine, thanks very much for joining us. And I hope you get a knock on the door. Thank you very much. And likewise. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the 5th Annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com.